This was the first episode of the Unconventional Podcast that I'd recorded since my ASD diagnosis, and there was no better person to share this with than Jamie Shields. Not only has Jamie been recently diagnosed himself, but on top of all of those challenges that we both discuss on this episode, he's registered blind. A southerner and an Irishman, discussing the world of neurodiversity, what people need to look out for, and how we are trying to force change in our communities. This was possibly the most open and honest conversation I've ever had about my own mind. I hope you get as much from this episode as I did. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's Friday. I've survived this week, so I'm happy. <laughs> and you just mentioned there you had COVID. Yeah, back in January, I had COVID. It's like my third attempt with it. Third time lucky. And I've just been um, bouncing back with it. But this time it's like left like a lingering sore throat and a sore chest. So I've kind of been sick, but hey-ho. Such as COVID. I'd rather oh, have a little sore chest than lose my smell for the rest of the year. My mum hasn't a smell back in two years, so I'm like, I think I've had a lucky or sore throat. Oh, really? So she would you say that she's kind of suffering from long COVID? 100%. She's been, like, honestly, her health since COVID has been terrible, but she hasn't been able to smell or taste. And at Christmas, they're just feeling like back in December, well, obviously, we know Christmas is, but at Christmas, she was eating a dinner crying. She's just like, I miss the taste of cranberry sauce. And I was like, no. it's the little things in life you really do take for granted. Absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, she's soldiering on. She's found a new way to entertain herself, um, which is not candy. So I think she's happy with that a wee bit. <laughs> Jamie, I like some of the stuff you've got behind you. You're a man after my own heart. We've both got very tech-based, gadgety, geeky-based backgrounds. Yeah, 100%. My, if I had my way, there'd be more stores up there. But my partner keeps taking it all away. It's like that's a kid's toilet needs to go, and I'm like, no, that's, it's collectible. Trust me. That's outrageous. See, I'm I'm a, I'm a Lego man. You can't actually. You you can probably just see it on your screen. I've also got another camera over there, but yeah, you can see all the Lego. Are you are you much of a Lego fan? I was when I was waiting, to be honest with you. With my eyes, I'm terrible with it. Like my eyes are so bad. Um, but like I remember having it when I was wee. But yeah, I didn't have it beyond that. My mum, I think, realised I was losing the blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and then she ends up treading on it, which is just the biggest disaster ever. And then you're the enemy. It's like you've done it deliberately. It's like I didn't do yeah. it deliberately. I'm blind. Yeah. I can't even see it. <laughs> cool. Um, thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate you taking the time. I I spotted you however many weeks and months ago that I actually invited you on the podcast, and I thought to myself, this guy definitely is someone that I want to get on. He's someone that lives and breathes that inclusivity kind of um, and and the whole message around people embracing a disabled environment and and it's not even and as you've said so many times yourself it's not even the visual um disabilities that that we're necessarily talking about and I talk about it a lot in my content as well it's the it's the more invisible ones that aren't obvious to people that are um, not educated and it's the things that go unnoticed a lot of the time by so many but it's the ignorance to it that I think is becoming more and more frustrating and I wanted to get your take on it because for me you come across as some I mean I've read your LinkedIn profile you are someone that is through and through all about that inclusive life 
the real passion that you show behind it, not only in your content, but if you read your LinkedIn profile, everything you've done over the last so many years and everything you're involved with now is to do with that world. And I kind of want to get your take on a where we're going wrong, why the fight, why it seems to be a constant fight. And I think I know the answers in my world, but I want to get it from from your side because you speak so passionately about it. Um, and I and I often wonder if that passion and that drive actually alienates some people because I almost feel like. I'm quite intimidated to even engage with this guy because he's so knowledgeable and he knows so much that and I'm so ignorant to it that I don't I don't want to almost get involved. So I really 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 appreciate you coming on. Tell us a little bit before we kind of get into some of the stuff you've been talking about recently because I want to pick up on a couple of your posts that you've put out over the last couple of days. Tell us a bit about you kind of just the the journey to where you are now. So take us back as far as you want, because I imagine it's quite interesting. Yeah, so um, I was born with my disability, so I've always kind of had to navigate a disabling society. Um, I went to mainstream education for the first few years of my life until secondary school, which I know is known as like, you're usually like 11, I think, when you're going into secondary yeah. school. Uh, so I kind of navigated society and had been segregated. So in education, I was segregated. I was bullied quite badly. I was excluded. I wasn't taught the same as other kids. In fact, my physical physical education is the kids played sport. I was throwing a ball and a basket, but it was literally two, two feet away from me. So like I'm actually blind, but I have some sight. Like I can go to the shop, I can walk around in public. It's more if the sun's out and it's really glaring that I can't really see. It's like that's when I kind of really feel it. I'm legally not allowed to drive. So it's very much my sight's noticeable when you see me doing things. But if you just walk past me in the street, you wouldn't know. So I got segregated and bullied and being from a really small town where everybody knows everybody. That's not great because everybody then knows that you're this special kid. And then in mainstream education, when I, uh, for, uh, when I left mainstream education for secondary school, I went to a specialist school, which I hate that term. Um, but it, like to me, it wasn't specialist. It was inclusive. It was accessible education. So I was in the class of six people and the teacher at the time to get a support. So even though I went to this school, I was still being segregated. I was still having to travel to go to this special school every day. It was taking me three hours, you know, every day. That's going an hour and a half in the morning, an hour and a half in the afternoon to get to school. All other kids my age were I playing. I was traveling to school because of my eyesight. So it really frustrated me. And I kind of became really, as a teenager, withdrew. Um, I kind of didn't like the fact that I was disabled. In fact, I'll actually go as far as I hated being disabled. I thought it was a weakness. and I thought it was a real shameful thing. Um, and then I think when you add in the mix of being a man where you kind of told you can't cry, you can't show emotion, you can't do this. It then just kind of becomes this like feeling that eats away at you. So um, I left I left education as soon as I could um, in terms of secondary school. And I tried to go to college, failed that. Tried to go to university three times, failed that. I was like, what can I do? And I was like, art, I can do art. So I went back to education and did my A-levels in art. Then tried to go to university to do art failed that because university was completely different so i kind of learned really young that society wasn't equipped for me and even when i was going to special school it was very much that it was taking away my confidence so i kind of then just spent the rest of my life bouncing job to job after education and it honestly wasn't until the past few years where i went what am i doing like i've let myself believe that i'm the problem but i'm not the problem these workplaces these employers these education systems 
they're built to repress disabled people. They're built to segregate disabled people. And if you're near, if you're neurodiverse, or if you are you're neurodiverse, whatever way you want to um, identify there, for me it was very much that we're being made to do the norm. I didn't know back then that I was ADHD. I had combined ADHD, or there was um, ASD. I didn't know none of that. And then now when I look back and realise, it's like, wow, so I was navigating this disabled society that was built by neurotypical people, designed for neurotypical people. Is it any wonder I didn't know if I was coming and going all those years? So my current role with AMS is kind of when I just exploded. And it was because the first time in my life, somebody said, what do you need? What can we do to empower you in the workplace? What tools do you need? What support can we give you? What education does your manager need? So it was a complete 360 moment. And I think in the past three and a half years, they haven't got me to shut up. <laughs> well, and I and I guess sorry. I I guess that you they they empower you to go out on LinkedIn and to do the things that you do within the social communities, which is extremely rare for businesses. Normally, they want to handcuff all of their their staff. And I guess you've found someone that actually embraces you for you and actually wants to shout about that, which is incredible, really. Like they told us when, we, when I started recruitment, so AMS is like a recruitment RPO. Like we support clients with recruitment. So we do essentially either the full recruitment or parts of it. And when I started, they said, you need to build a personal brand. And of course, me new to the world of recruitment, it's like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know, like I thought I had your brand kind of thing. And they were like, no, you need to build your expertise. Go on to LinkedIn. You know, that's where you find your candidates. That's where you build your relationships. And that's where you can kind of share a little bit more about your life. Um, of course, I don't do things by halves, never have. Um, I think that's the ADHD. And some of the people I was following were like the likes of Leah Turner, Isaac Harvey, you know, just people who had really built these incredible communities who were sharing, engaging, and really just supporting each other. And I started posting, and I can remember the first time I posted about my disability, I kind of came away and went, oh my God, what have I done? My mom's going to kill me, or my family's going to be so embarrassed. And people started reacting to it and we've been really, really nice. And my mailbox blew up more than the actual post did. And people were saying, thank you for talking about this and thanks for sharing your experience. And it almost then became for me, like my dear diary, like, like then became my dear diary. And it was like all this frustration or whatever was happening in that moment, I could turn it into something and I could put it out there. And it was like, I didn't have to try to hold the thought in and try to rationalize it myself. Like I'd always done my whole life and been neurodivergent, you know, trying to, rationalize things in your head like sometimes with my ADHD I'm my worst own enemy my own worst enemy I'll sit and have a fight with myself and I'll sit and second guess everything I do but using LinkedIn kind of took away a lot of that it was like oh my goodness I just almost like a brain dumped on my content and it's like done I've closed that and it really just became really therapeutic and honestly those rants turned into a community I don't know how that happened but yeah I'm just really grateful that it and my employer seemed happy with it which was great <laughs> It is great because I've worked for places before. I started on LinkedIn in 2019 while I was still employed because my company didn't want to um, embrace LinkedIn. They, they had no idea of how powerful the community could be. So I ended up going on and just doing my own thing in my own time. And it kind of grew and grew and grew. And it, But it was only really back in 2019 that I, we our 10-year-old son is autistic and obviously, because we've been in that world for so many years, it you start to look at yourself as parents. And that was I've recently announced on LinkedIn that I'd been I've been diagnosed with ADHD and, and autism. And the ADHD one wasn't a shock. Um, my wife says that the autism one also wasn't a shock. And and but 
for for a while, I actually hesitated announcing it, and I'll tell you why. There's almost this. We live in a bubble on LinkedIn, and there's almost this thing of every man and his dog and a woman has now got a label of some description, and it, it you almost fall into this trap of are people doing it just for attention? And it's only when you do explore it that you realise actually it's it's not that at all. It's actually just establishing. And you picked up a really good point earlier about you'd lived for so many years not understanding yourself and why you did the things you did, and you beat yourself up because of that. And and I I did the same for so many years. I just thought I was lazy, or I thought I was thick and I couldn't retain information, or I thought I was rude. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought I was. You know, my friends, I've still got old friends from school, but I'm I'm definitely the odd one out. I don't really enjoy doing a lot of the things that they enjoy. A lot of typical blokes do, the dad thing. I don't enjoy it at all. And as I've got older, I've excluded myself more and more from those those things. But for years, I used to look at myself and think, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just do the things that your mates are doing? Um, exactly the same feeling, so I did, like the exact same. Like we get, like I used to get told I was quirky, and I used to see quirky as this really offensive word to me. It was just like, oh, you're really quirky. And I was like, that's your way of saying I'm different. That's your way of saying I'm not the same as everybody else or I'm not yeah. normal. And it used to really drive me nuts. And now when people say describe yourself, I'm like quirky because I'm like, I'm taking power back to that word. But it was like we we didn't know. So we masked so hard. And it's like I told everybody I masked so hard that I masked for myself. And I think like when I was getting diagnosed, the... Um, psychiatrist had turned around to me and said you know because you're disabled this is why this has been missed and I was just like what do you mean she's just like because people already have this perception that because you're disabled that you maybe already need a little bit of help that maybe your thinking will be a little bit different or maybe because you already have that kind of specialist support for your eyesight that maybe it was just overlooked and when I look back at every instance in my life where I know that I was maybe masking a bit or I was struggling I think I was telling people I can't process this you aren't explaining this to me properly or this isn't working for me and I would be really badly stem and like I used to like really like just rock back and forth and mm. like I used to like dig my nails into my skin and almost like cut not cut myself but like do you like just scratch until it was almost scratched bleeding and it was like that's stemming like I was doing all these really neurodiverse ADHD or autistic traits but nobody was identifying it and I think that was the biggest problem is nobody knew what it was that every you know 2008 I think is when they kind of start first started using the term ADHD. And it was just very much that nobody knew what it was. And I think now when we look at it, we see so many people coming out. Uh, I say coming out. Uh, coming out is neurodivergent. They're getting a diagnosis. I'm like, this is making up for like a whole lifetime where we were told that you have mental health, that you're anxious, that you're depressed, that your child, well, when I was a kid, my mum used to get told, your child's a very emotional child or your child's a very emotionally withdrawn child. I was never emotionally withdrawn. I just couldn't connect with all the person's feelings or mm. understand the process why you thought something different. So it's mm. almost now we see everybody in their everybody in their granny I say is coming out as neurodivergent. But I'm like, this is amazing because you know what? The more first there is, the more likely society is going to change and adopt and not be neurotypical, which mm. is just standard. But yeah, I feel everything you said there. Like yeah. my friends, I don't speak to none of my friends. The older I've got, the more withdrew I became. I used to be a party animal. And when I say party animal, I was binge drinking and to try to mask all the pain that I was feeling. But when I look back at that now, like if you put me in a bar now, I'm like completely different. It's like, oh my God, no, I can't think of anything worse. And I'm like, that's why I drunk so much. So I didn't have to deal with it. It's funny you say that actually, because one of my guests a while ago, um, uh, Maddie Alexandra Groot, she 
was a, a spend addict. She used to spend money all the time, and now she's actually flipped that, and now she helps people save money. And she she later, she later found out that that spending addiction was to do with the ADHD and having to replace that dopamine, that hit, that constant hit that you need. And she's now flipped that so that she gets that hit from saving as opposed to spending because she got into a lot of debt and she needed to get out of it. And for years, it, that really resonated with me because for so many years, I lived fairly miserably during the week. Not completely miserable. You know, I, I, I enjoyed parts of my job back in retail back in the day when I was young. But I used to spend so much money for that short-term hit, for that short-term fix. And then literally, I, it, was, it was like I had to have it, whatever it was at the time. I had to have it. My life would not be able to go on without buying this thing. And then literally five minutes later, I'd be bored of it. And I'd be then on to the next thing the following weekend. And the, honestly, the money I wasted. And the pe- people used to say to me, I've got so much money in the bank, like savings. I'm really good at saving. And, and I think, I, I have no money in the bank. Like I was earning really good money and I never had. And even now, not to the same extent, but we don't have a huge amount of savings, my wife and I, because we've invested the money in the house and stuff like that, which some would argue, okay, it's in the house, so you're always going to get it back. It's a great way to spend money, fine. But still, all of my friends have got countless thousands in the bank for a rainy day. I don't understand that life. I don't either. Like, I used to tell people, because I didn't know, obviously when I had ADHD, I didn't know what it was. And I used to tell people, oh, I could be dead tomorrow. This is what I'm doing. This is what I just live in my moment. And then now when you realise that actually that was a whole impulse thing, it was me yeah. trying to get my dopamine, because I still do it. I can't walk through, like, don't if I go to B&M or you meant to get up one thing or home bargains. Like, I go up and down each island there and it takes me hours to go through. My partner hates shopping with me. I have to go alone. And when you're blind, right, you're blind, it's not great. Um, But, you know, I, I had to, this dopamine hit, so this, like, kind of impulse, I have it all the time. Like, I'll be sitting in, in the evenings just having a cigarette at the back door and I'll be like, I need to buy something and I'll go buy something. And if it's got Pokemon on it or if it's Star Wars on it, which are my, like, hyper-focuses since I was a kid, I haven't ever shaken them. But I bet, doesn't matter what it is, I have salt shakers, I have lampshades, I have books, I have candles. And it's like, why do I have a Star Wars candle? This makes no sense. <laughs> but it's, I think it's very much, it's about trying to make sure that you, you kind of learn that that is impulse, do you know what I mean? And that's kind of what I've been doing, because like, if I look at my house, and I'm the same, because I put my money into my house, it's like, I'm going to buy this lamp that costs a couple of hundred pounds, and it's like, what have I done? But then, at the moment, I love it, but it's like, if I look at my house, I do my house twice a year, I redecorate my house twice a year. When I tell people that, they're like, what are you doing? Who does that? And then when I say redecorate, it means the walls get painted, it means new floors get down, it means new lampshades get up, everything's replaced, like every piece of like furniture mm-hmm. in that room. Uh, apart from the sofa, because, you know, we can't really do that every year. It's too expensive, that one. Um, but, you know, it's, it's proper put the work in. And then after, I'm like, I didn't need to do that. But for me, I find it really therapeutic when I'm in those type of um, focused mm. moments, when I am kind of getting that dopamine. But I've had to take a real step back. When I got my official diagnosis there in January, I got my official diagnosis. I've been self-diagnosed for about a year before it. And I got my official diagnosis and went, do you know what? I can't keep talking about it. I'm going to make change or tell them other people how they can make change or support themselves. I need to actually start taking advice on myself. So I've set myself a little pot and I'm like, do you know what, if I do this week, I can go to reward myself with this. And there's, there's a couple of pounds now that I can go treat myself to whatever I want. But it's really, really hard telling somebody who has no impulse, don't spend this. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, and people say to me, just, just don't spend. And I think, okay, I, I honestly don't know how to process that. I mean, don't get me wrong. For me, it was about 
having a focus and a, and a and a something that I was passionate about. And for so many years, I wasn't passionate about what I was doing as a job. Um, and for so many years, I was single. I mean, I didn't meet my wife until I was 28. So while all my friends were married off and, and having kids so much younger and buying houses, I was living on my own. I'd bought my own house and I was still going out. And so I wasn't in that place. And now the, those impulses have have wavered and they've been replaced with this obsessive focus on building the business. And when I say obsessive focus, I mean like 24-7 brain never stops. It was never great at stopping even in employment, but now it's ridiculous. Um, we actually went shopping yesterday and I said to my wife when we got there, we'd been there about an hour and it took us like 40 minutes to get to the place. And I said to her, from for the whole journey, I'd literally only stopped working about 10 minutes before we left the house. For the whole journey and the whole hour we'd been there, I hadn't stopped thinking about two particular things in my business that I needed to work on. And they were just playing over and over in my brain, like like uh, that obsessive constant on repeat. It's like a record sort of in the background yeah. that you can't turn off. Yep. And yeah, exactly that. And she said maybe that's where people potentially take medication for ADHD to try and control that. Um, when When you said about being diagnosed in January... What was your process that you went through to to go f- for that diagnosis? Was it an NHS process? Was it private? Explain that to us. Yeah, so it wasn't NHS because I, so I'm based in Northern Ireland with this lovely accent. Or wait list was, I've told you, we're looking for years plus, And yeah. that's at a minimum. And I can remember going to doctors and saying, I, I, I think I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't think I'm depressed. I think I'm anxious, but I don't think I'm actually really anxious about situations. And I couldn't explain it to him. And they kept pushing me full of antidepressants. Like, for years and years and years, they kept giving me antidepressants. And they were taking me off antidepressants at times, like, without weaning me off them. And we both know they can be really strong drugs. And if you are neurodivergent, some of those tablets can have the actual opposite effect that they need to have on you. So there was times where I had taken medication and, you know, it had really messed with my mental health, like to the point that I was self-harming or I was thinking I didn't want to be here. It was really making things a lot worse and making me a lot more destructive. So I kept going to the doctors for years and they kept saying, we're going to make a referral. We're going to make a referral for you. Go get counselling or this or that. And I kept saying, I don't need counselling. There's something wrong with my head. There's something not right with my head. I can't process things. It's like when you're telling me this, I want to lash out and scream. And it's not like, that's not that's not, that's not me being depressed. That's not me being restricted. That's like me shutting down. It's my way of shutting down. I just wanted to scream out loud. And they didn't listen. And then last year, well, when I started AMS three and a half years ago, I, I was exposed to so much, um, so many different people with so much diverse lived experience of neurodiversity. Not just ADHD, not just autism, but this whole range of different ways of thinking. And I, for the first time in my life, I was going... Maybe I'm neurodiverse. Maybe I'm neurodivergent. I know that obviously at the time I didn't know the words or what way to express. And I can remember going on to call specifically around autism and thinking, that sounds like me. But then going on to calls with people talking about ADHD and I was going, that sounds like me too. And I was coming off those calls more confused. And I spent about no word of a lie, about a year and a half down rabbit holes on TikTok, on YouTube, wherever I could get information from. I was absorbing this information. And the more I absorbed, the more it's like, I'm definitely neurodivergent. There's no other explaining it. And I decided I was going to go down the route of going private. So I booked a private assessment through a company in Northern Ireland. 
who, if I had waited with them, I'd still be waiting for my appointment because their waiting list was a year and a half, and that was going private and paying over a grand for it. And then Ellie Middleton, I was on LinkedIn and came across Ellie Middleton, and she was making recommendations for this company called RTN, Mental Health Solutions. And I reached out to them, and within a month, I had my assessment. The psychiatrist who did it was just honestly fantastic. And like, bear in mind, I had started self-diagnosing a year before, so I think I was very confident going into that meeting. But I cried the whole way through it. Like, see, being told, yeah, you actually, here's, here's your bit of paper. You're going to get a bit of paper to tell you this. It was just very much like this validating, evaluative, but really like, oh my God, I'm going to grieve my whole life now because I've missed out on all the support. I was left out or excluded because I was disabled, but it wasn't my disability holding me back. That wasn't my eyes. It was my brain. It was my thinking. It was you weren't recognizing I was doing things different. So it was a very emotional, emotional, emotional process. And I don't think anything can prepare you for it. Even when as much as you break yourself up for it, you think, yes, I'm going to get my answers. I, I cry. I crumbled to that lady. So I did. And I felt really bad for it. But she says it's happened a lot. And I think it's just because it's validation, isn't it? It's like, I'm not, and excuse my language, it's like, I'm, there's not, not something wrong in my head. I don't need locked up in a room. I don't need a straitjacket. Because when you've been told your whole life that you're depressed or that you're anxious or you're X, Y, Z, you start to believe it. Even though you know you're, you know deep down in your heart this isn't the reason, you know that you are neurodivergent. Still being told that, you do have this inkling where it's like, maybe I'm wrong. What happens if it is? What happens if it's just my mind telling me this year? So it was very much for me just this, it was just really like revealing. My partner would go went for assessment at the same time and walked away with the exact same diagnosis. And it was almost like, oh my God, this is why we don't really speak at times. And this is why we shut down at the same time. And it was, it was just like every little aspect of my life had this torch shine shown in it. And it all started to make sense. And the past month since I've had my personal diagnosis, I was like, do you know what? I've supported candidates who are neurodivergent and disabled for years. I need to start listening to some of their advice that I've given them for once. And that's exactly what I've been doing. I'm like, I just try to transform everything around me. And that hyper focus you talk about your business, I have that too. So I do, like my partner is always like, can you stop now? Can you stop now? You've talked too much about it. Or what we've actually started doing now in the middle of conversations is, right, I'm starting to stem right now because you've been on a little bit. Can you round up the story? And like, it's really like, to anyone listening, they're probably like, oh my God, what were they we're speaking to each other? It's kind of blunt. But to us, it's now the perfect dynamic because yeah. it's like, I'm not going to lose focus when you're talking. You're not going to lose focus when I'm talking. And do what? We now know when to say, do you know what? This is triggering me. I just need to take a step back a moment. And it's just completely changed the way we communicate. Yeah. So it's tra- very, very transformative for me. It, do you know what? You say about you were crying. Um, I felt when I was on my call and, and the lady that I was on was actually from Ireland, funnily enough. Um, Caroline Goldsmith was her name and she'd been recommended to me by um, a couple of people on LinkedIn that are friends of mine called uh, Danny Townley and Rebecca Pay. And they they both had seen Caroline uh, perhaps a year or 18 months previous. And it took me probably a year from initially reaching out to Caroline to actually take in the plunge for all the reasons that we talked about before in terms of do I really, is it going to make a difference to me? What are people going to say? What if she says, no, you're just lazy fucker? Um, which and then during that year, I kind of got to the point where and my wife was like, "She's not going to say that. There's just no way she's going to say that." But throughout the call, she was so in tune with my brain, based on the answers I was telling her, that it does it it does make you start to well up a little bit and think, Do "You know what? Someone actually gets this. Someone really gets it." And then um, 
after we finished and obviously she'd kind of said what she'd said and that sense of you said about validation it was and it was also a sense of relief that you aren't perhaps the person that you'd thought you were for so many years and and you also thought that some of your friends and peers thought you were um when you said about uh, and I said this to her ASD and ADHD very different tendencies and I said to her when I was on the call and I've said this to my wife a lot and it and it's been more apparent since I started the business in May every day I feel like one is fighting the other so you for example your uh, arrangement behind you of all the figures and the books and stuff very neat very tidy mine is Everything has its place. Everything like on the Lego models, the wheels have to turn a certain way or it frustrates me. But then on the same day, almost in the same breath, the ADHD says, no, fuck off. I'm going to I'm gonna disrupt that and I'm going to stop you working on that project for more than an hour because it's going to bore you. Do you feel the same? Oh my goodness, yes. Like I also have tug of war between like with the same my brain wants to do, with the same my brain wants to do. And I know that the, the, that's not exactly what's true, but I said my ADHD is the one side and my um, ASD is here. And they, they literally are just tug of war. Like, this looks really clean behind me. And it's probably because I ran around last night making sure it was for today. But <laughs> when I, if I go looking for something, you best believe everything's off that shelf. Everything's on a pile on the floor. If I'm even trying to find my keys, there is a trail of chaos behind us. And I live in quite a clean house. Um, and like I have to, but I have two dogs and obviously being registered blind as well, that doesn't help. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of times where there is that overlap and particularly with my eyesight as well. So there's times where I'll get really frustrated or really hyper-focused on something. I'll be really hyper-focused. That's my ADHD. It's like, I'm not going to go to the toilet. I'm not going to eat. Don't speak to me. If you try to speak to me, I'm going to pretend to listen, but you're going to go right above my head. Yeah. So I'll sit there for hours. And then I'll encounter something maybe there was as a challenge or something's inaccessible or I'm doing research on the website. And then my, my eyesight kicks in and it's like, I can't see this. But then my my ASD, or my it's kind of a mix actually of both, my ASD kind of kicks in and it's like, this isn't perfect no more. You're losing your focus. And then I start beating myself up to the yeah. point where it's just like, you aren't good enough. This is your fault. And then I'll go and sit in the corner and lie for hours because I feel tired, I feel depressed. And I just sat and beat myself up because of an inaccessibility online. So it's like, in my life, there's so much of that, that crossover where those frustrations or those angers or you know even just trying to keep my house clean like that's a chore like that I have to clean my house every day I tell my friends that and they're like why do you clean your house every day and I'm like because if I didn't it would crumble and they're like your house is so clean I'm like I know but you haven't seen me looking for anything so it's 100% and I think as well it's even conversations like do you know I can be out in public eat ordering food I'm terrible with food and this is how I realized that it wasn't just ADHD because I can, I have this thing when I'm in a restaurant. If I don't like food, I can't have it near me. Like if I taste something and it's not cooked properly or it's not doesn't taste right or I don't like it, that plate cannot be anywhere near me. And it's not in front of me. It needs to be six tables away. And I would be out in public and if something happened to the food, I'd send it back. But I'd be really lovely when I come in and it's like, I want to be that person's best friend. And it's like, yes, hi, how are you? And just, this person's probably going, oh my God, this person's had a bag of skittles before they came in here, they're bouncing off the walls. <laughs> and it's just my my excitement, it's my idea. It's just a really excitable person. But as soon as like something goes wrong with the food, it's like that person has personally come over and slapped me. And it's like an insult to me. And it's like my mind can't process it and I shut down. 
And I kind of take a plate of food and went and walked over another table and sat it down and said, that can't be near me. No, this is disgusting. And I proper lost the rag. And the person will be like, oh, well, I'll get you more food. I'll replace it. But in my head, it's done. That, that, that is over. The wall's up. The bar is there. You can't touch me. You can't speak to me. I want to go home. And it's like that shutdown. And it's like, people, I don't think, understand that shutdown. People used to say, oh, that's your ADHD. It makes you shut down. It's like, that's actually not my ADHD. which makes me shut down. My ADHD will make me feel sometimes like I can't have the, I don't have the energy to get up. But it doesn't shut me down to the point that I can't be physically touched or to the point that I physically can't be spoken to. It's like I've become so overwhelmed about food. And it's so funny because I'm such a plain, picky eater. Like, and again, I was told that's my ASD that um, I'm very plain, picky eater. So, like, I like the same foods all the time. If you try to introduce me to a new brand of food, I am not going to like it. I can taste the difference between beans. Like, if you give me Branson beans, then I prefer beans. And you replace them with Heinz, I know they've been replaced. I also just recently just realised that the Branson taste has changed. I opened them the other day and I was like, they've the, the changed the taste of these beans. And everybody around me is going, they haven't. And I went online and was like, there, yes, they have. There's the proof. And it's like, <laughs> that's my ASD. is so particularly. And it needs things a certain way. Whereas sometimes my ADHD is just like, oh, that didn't work. Let's bounce this. But it's, it's so hard. It's like, you're a bouncy ball. You can only be bounced every so often. <laughs> Yeah. Do you find that um, I've always found that balance, people talk about balance all the time on LinkedIn, or you've got to have a a healthy work life balance, or you've got to have a healthy this balance or that balance. I actually find balancing myself uh, almost an impossible task. And you mentioned there about going and sitting in a corner depressed. I've never, I wouldn't ever go so far as to say I've been depressed in the sense that because I've never been diagnosed with that and I know there's lots of people that really genuinely suffer with really bad depression but I do find that I have extreme highs and and lows I find that finding just a I mean I look at my friends and again this could be masking this could be them covering it up like so many people do and probably like I tried to do for years but I look at them and I think you're always balanced like you, you never go crazy and you're never really down. You're always just balanced. And maybe people think of me like that. Actually, no, they don't. Um, but I definitely have those extreme highs and lows. And they can literally come and go in the same day. Yeah. Without, you, without a blink of an eye. Yeah. Without a blink of an eye. I can be having a conversation with somebody. And it's like, take me my best friend. We'll be having a conversation. And it'll be the most excitable conversation. We'll have a really good conversation. And all of a sudden, my defense comes up. It's like, why are you speaking to me in that tone of voice? It's like my, it's like reactions. I react to things in different ways than other people would. And they're like, what are you talking about? I haven't said anything. It's like, no, you got really condescended. And it's like, they can't tell me they weren't. But it's like my mind has already responded. And it's it, it's really damaging because you do you think you're rude. You're like, oh, am I a rude person for this? And it's like, I, I don't mean to be. It's like, I always tell people I wear my heart on my sleeve. You're going to see the happy. You're going to see the sad. And unfortunately, I have a very facial, a very vocal facial expression. So if you tell me someone I'm not going to like, you're going to know it. I've been on calls, you know, with other advocates and we've been talking about maybe disability or neurodivergence. And they've maybe said, oh, we shouldn't use the word disability. And I'm somebody who's really against that, um, especially because I think with my eyesight, I don't see my neurodivergence as a disability, although it can be disabling. But I don't see it as a disability because I do think when we are, when we embrace it, we're able to kind of get that support. There's so many advantages to it. But yes, it can be very disabling. But with my eyesight, that's disabling. That's disabling every day. There's no advantage for me to have bad eyesight. Like, 
it's not like Daredevil where you can see three walls, you have super hearing. That would be amazing, but there's, there's none of those kind of traits. Whereas with my new divergence, I know I can see things from a different perspective. I can't see the box on my side, but my new divergence, I can certainly recreate it. And I think I'm always kind of in this flow where it's like the mix of the two. So I just went off on a tangent here. I had a point and I completely forgot about it. Um, yeah, I do that yeah, all the time. I'll pass that back over to you because I have definitely just run out of my thoughts there. I'm glad you did that because if you hadn't, I would have forgotten what my next point was, which literally happens all the time. Like people say to me, and, and you'll get this, and actually I'm now going to go off on a tangent and probably forget where to come back, so I must keep it in somewhere in there. Um, people say, oh, you should write stuff down. Like when I'm, I mean, don't get me wrong, for my job, my business, I live by a Todoist. Every every little job is put in there because I know I'll forget it otherwise and I've got too many, too much going on to not. But actually for these podcasts, I know that if I'm busy writing stuff down, I'm not listening. Plus it looks crap for the video that then ends up on YouTube. But I really have to concentrate on what the person is saying so that I know how to respond and it's crazy because I don't have any, my brain doesn't retain any information unless it's literally gone over and over. Like obviously, I've retained information in my life, as you have, but it, I have to retain it in a way that suits me. Whereas some people just say, well, if you read something, you'll retain the information. No, I definitely won't. I hate reading. Um, so my, my question was, and I haven't forgot it, amazingly, you said about um, disa- neurodiverse can be disabling. I actually find that society has disabled it because of their perception of it. Oh, 100%. Like, when I use the word disabled, that's exactly what I mean by it. It's like, yeah. it's not that the person themselves are disabled, and that's it, 100%. It, it is a society, it's the structures, it's the environment, it's the attitudes, it's it's everything that we have, everyone who's not got this in lived experience, it's those who design the society to be in a way that doesn't accommodate us. It's the same as, um, it's kind of comes under social model of disability. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, like models of disability, you have the medical model, which is your, oh, this is an impairment, you need to fix, we need to fix you. And that's pretty much it. Then you have the social model, which is, well, actually, no, we're not the problem. The problem is a disabled in society, an inaccessible, uninclusive, and neurotypical society. I kind of put that last word in there, which I love. Um, but like you know, for me that's pretty much it because I don't sit down and say, like my eyesight, I'll sit there sometimes and I'll be like, okay, I can't see this in front of me. But my brain, I don't turn around and say, well, I can't think about this in front of me. You know, that that thought never processes my mind. And I know people are very much against superpowers and that kind of talk. And I used to be like that for years, especially around my eyesight. It's like, don't call me a superhero, don't have superpowers. But now with my neurodivergence, I'm like, well, actually, no, that's a superpower. You can sit there and be, be stuck in something for hours and hours and hours. Whereas I could look at something and have an answer or different ways to do it. But then, diff- you know, do you know what I mean? Because of my neurodivergence, that way of thinking. So for me, I see some kind of benefit. And when I talk about my disability and people say, you know, what is your disability? I'll never tell them it's neurodivergence. Never will tell them that it's because of my ADHD. I'll always put it back to my eyesight. And it's because I've grew up that way. Whereas I think if I hadn't maybe been through through my eyesight, I think if I wasn't registered blind from birth and maybe hadn't got my diagnosis had got my diagnosis earlier, I don't know how I'd feel, but I think because of that experience, being able to kind of look at society from that point of view where I was just being disabled because my eyesight. Whereas now I look at it and I see these influences, I see these people who are driving real change. Richard Bronson, do you know what I mean? Virgin, he is dyslexic, that is neurodivergent thinking. There is so many incredible people out there who have just absolutely mastered their game, who are absolutely killing what they're doing online in the workplace, and they're neurodivergent. And I think to myself, 
you don't have that with disability. You don't have those really figureheads who, and, and I'm saying, I know some people identify your neuro, neurodivergence neuro as disability. Myself, I don't, and this is just my own personal language, so please don't come for me, anybody. Um, but with disability, I didn't have that, that figurehead, that representation, whereas now I'm starting to see that representation. And I think if I would have been younger, I probably would have felt different because, again, different times we've moved on, and obviously neurodivergence is a big thing now. But I'm like, it's not, this isn't a hindrance. This is not a hindrance to me. It doesn't stop me driving. It doesn't stop me doing X, Y, Z. Don't get me wrong. It does have X, Y, Z implications sometimes. But I think it's fine for me. It's that intersectional between my sight, my, my brain, eyes and my brain, we'll say. Although they're connected, it's very much two very different experiences. Like my ADHD can be the most amazing thing, but can also be the most draining thing. Whereas my eyesight is just constantly draining. I don't, I'd never really say, this is the benefit to my eyesight. I can see extra, because I can't, and I don't have my hearing, as I said, like Daredevil. There's none of that there extra abilities with your visual impairment, the way people would have you believe on movies yeah. and TV. <laughs> I, I think that the, the, the disability association with neurodiversity is very much a society thing. It's very much because it's, up until now, it's not been a thing, has it? I mean, up until three years ago i'd never heard the term neurodiverse obviously i knew about autism because because of our son but i'd never heard the term neurodiverse i wasn't deep enough in that world to have heard of that and in the last three years it's obviously exploded and lots more people are coming out and as you say people like leah and ellie they're talking about it a lot more and they've built these impressive communities around that and that conversation which is fantastic because it does empower people to go away and actually do a bit of research on themselves and, and try and understand their own minds a bit more. <clears throat> and yeah, maybe there's one or two percent of people that will use it as a gain without actually doing it and, and sharing knowledge like you do for the purpose of educating people. And and like I very much do with within a lot of my content. And it, it you know, our neurodiverse world that we live in inspired my business. Same, so I we can... we yeah. I'm and again, it's really funny because like, when I think, as I said, like I had my side from being a child, I used to be so ashamed of my side, like to the point where I wouldn't tell people I was disabled. I used to feel uncomfortable telling people my side because of, it was because of the association I've had with the trauma that I've had with the experiences I had in the past with it. But when I kind of now tell people my side, I, I think that it's because we are creating these kind of spaces where we can talk about it. I and I don't have no shame about it. And it's maybe also because of frustration. It's like it's got to the point where it's like, I've had enough is enough. But it's these safe spaces that we've created online. I tell my, I told my mum, it's like, if you want to know more about how I feel about my disability, go look at my LinkedIn page. And she laughed at me because that's your business stuff. And I was like, it's my business stuff, but it's also probably the most tricky you'll ever get for me about my disability because I don't hold back about it no more. And I think that's the thing is, We've all had to hold back most of our lives. We've always had to kind of mask in, survive, or mask to fit in, or people have told us, oh, you're quirky, you're this, you're X, Y, Z, when really we aren't, we aren't the, we aren't the kind of, I'm talking about the word here, we aren't the less percentage than we think we are, whereas before we were told we weren't the norm, we don't fit into the box. Well, actually, we're now seeing that one in five people live with disability, one in five people in neurodivergent in the UK, and it's like, well, actually, do you know what? How many more is there? Because still people waiting for diagnosis and the massive backlog of diagnosis, that one in five could possibly be three in five. What happens if neurodivergent thinking is racist heady with moon bugs? If that's the next evolution step for us, and we'll all, we, more and more of us will become it. And I think that's the exciting part for me is that 
we're now at the place where we're starting to learn more, we're starting to get those answers. And people like Ali are just absolutely smashing the game when she's done, like to build an audience, over 200k people talking about neurodivergence. Real empowerment. Now, don't get me wrong, the times I'll be under a post, then please make it accessible. And that's the intersectionality of my eyesight, is I struggle to get information that's accessible about it. But I think having those voices, having those people and podcasts, this space that you're creating as well for you and your guests, I think this is how we change that stigma. This is how we help people get the support that they need. And this is how we break that barriers within society that is disabling us. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you've talked there about the accessibility. And I know that within a lot of your content, rather than um, when you do imagery, you you go to such extents on the alt tags and the descriptions of the visuals that you don't actually put it in the alt tags. You make a point of putting it at the bottom of your content because obviously anyone that's not visually impaired or, or chooses to have the alt tags turned on won't see that you've written it in the alt tags. Is that a, is that a deliberate thing to show that you're being accessible? It's not to show it's accessible. Like one thing that I, uh, I, I listened to a TED talk last year and it was from somebody called Merle Evans. And if you don't know Merle, Merle is deaf and she's a deaf advocate in the US. She's amazing. Like she's just another one of these people in the space who, if you're not following, go follow. And she basically did a TED talk and she kind of talked about communication and she said, we should always try to communicate. We always we should always try to communicate in three different ways. And she used verbal communication as an example. Being deaf, you can use sign language. So there's one way. Speaking itself, that's two. Or if you don't have either of them, we all have a phone in our pocket or a pen and paper to hand. So there's three ways to communicate. And this message really just kind of stuck in my head and I couldn't shake it. One of those neurodivergent things, you can't shake it. And I was speaking to people and I was saying, I'm adding my old text and my images. And somebody says, well, what happens to the people who can't use the screen reader? Because most platforms, you can only see the old text, which is a short description of the image. You can't see that unless you have a screen reader. And I thought about myself and I was like, actually, that's a really fair point because I've only learned how to use a screen reader properly in the past four years because I refused to accept the help before. I refused to use the screen reader, whereas that confidence came when I started using it. But using the screen is really hard too. So not everybody knows how to use them. Not everybody has access. Not everyone is comfortable. And equally, there is so much diverse disabilities out there. So there's people who, have, who are maybe deaf or are visually impaired. That's not going to help them. That's that old text. So I was like, do you know what? Let's look what we can do to do, look into this here. And I realised that companies like Disability In were using image description as well as alt text. So to me, it came back to, do you know what? Here's three ways to show this. The image is one visual all text embedded is two, and that image description is three. And I kind of, my all text, my image description particularly has kind of went off a little bit in tangents because I do, I try to make it authentic. And I think that's something that I'm seeing more and more people do. And I'm like, why don't you want to get everybody a personality in there? You know, nobody wants to read this boring text. Or it's Jamie wearing a red jumper. But when you suddenly say, it's Jamie wearing a red jumper, he's smiling, he looks happy. It's like, oh, this is engaging. You start to feel accepted. Well, that was a terrible example. But do you know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, and I think that's the difference of it is always just realize stuff in three different ways. If you're doing a video, you know, you have your video, that's visual, you have your captions on screen, that's two, and a transcript, there's three. There's three different ways you presented that piece of information. And that was all because of our elephants and her saying, we have three ways to communicate. We should always focus on that. Yeah. It's interesting you say about captions because I've actually just written a piece of content that will go out at some point next week. And it's about captions on video. And it's even though LinkedIn has given us the ability to auto-add captions, although they're rubbish and you have to edit them, but there's still people choosing to turn those off, not add their own, 
because I know one person even said to me when I questioned questioned them, they said they ruined the look of the video. And I'm like, really? So many excuses for captions for not adding them. It takes too much time. What she asked me, no, it takes enough time. But my response to that is, when we compare that to a life of inaccessibility, is that really extra five minutes really going to take that much time to you? Or would you rather continue to stay up with this person? So I, I very much believe in flipping the narrative from people when they tell me these things. I've heard people say it's too expensive to add captions to video. And I mean, 100% it is if you don't have the money to be paying for a subscription for the likes of premium uh, Adobe Pro. However, YouTube is free. You can upload a video and add your captions to YouTube for free. Same as TikTok, same as Instagram, and now LinkedIn. So what's your excuse? Um, and then the third one I get is, it's too difficult, which I appreciate because I think sometimes with disability, it can be. I think neurodivergence as well, being neurodivergence and having to go through manually captions is so difficult because you have to focus. Then when you add in your eyesight into that, and I'm like, listen, this is a challenge. My partner gets tapped on the shoulder constantly. It's like, help me, help me. And I think that, yes, it can take time for something it can be fulfilling to do, but a lot of the stuff out there is now automated. There's no excuse. Yes, you have to go in and edit it, but manual captions are better than captions, which is your automated ones. But for somebody to physically have turned off the accessibility feature of those captions, you are basically taking your middle finger and holding it to somebody who is deaf, holding it to somebody who is neurodivergent, holding it to somebody who is trying to learn another language. Because captions isn't just about deaf people and neurodivergent people. It helps people with cognitive disabilities, intellectual disabilities, people learning another language, people who's on the way to work forgot the headphones but want to watch this really important video but don't want everyone to know what it's about. You know, captions benefit everybody. And marketing studies actually show that they improve SEO, so they improve your website SEO and your content SEO, but it also improves your user experience. That person is twice as likely to engage with the video if it has captions. So for me, I'm like, you've willingly taken steps to turn this off. You're willing, willingly giving that finger to disabled consumers or neurodivergent consumers, but you're also basically saying, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about accessibility. I get that a lot. Like I reach out to probably a lot more people than I should on LinkedIn. And God love Steve Bartlett. He's my latest target. I've been messaging him for about a month saying, look, your content's not accessible. Your content's not accessible. Because for me, I believe that everything's a learned behaviour online. Do you know what I mean? Like if you have followers, a big influencers you follow, we pick up what they're doing. We learn what they're doing. We copy what they're doing. As much as people say, oh, I'm not. Yes, you are. If you've been inspired by posting somebody's post, they've inspired you. You've seen something there. So I think of these big influencers, if they start creating their content accessibly, how many more people would do it? Mm. And I've reached out to so many people asking for accessibility. And most recently, actually, I got a response back from... Somebody who's really big, and it's not Stephen Bartlett, by the way, because I do love Stephen Bartlett, um, but it's not Stephen Bartlett, but I've got a reply back from somebody two days ago, well, yesterday actually, and I've said to them, listen, your content's not accessible. This was your post. This was my post yesterday. This was somebody on LinkedIn who is so well known, right across the board, has over 135k followers. I'm not going to tell you their name. I'll tell you the initials as AS is their initials. This person runs one of the largest marketing companies who is just absolutely revolutionizing what they're doing, speaks their truth, but decided yesterday to come back to me when I told them it was unfortunate. They didn't want to consider accessibility because when I asked them to make things accessible, it was a point blank no. Nope, don't want to do this. But when I told them it was unfortunate and that the captions weren't accessible, their response to tell me was that I was the problem, that I was guilt tripping there, and that I was making accusations against them, and that it was RC behavior. And I sat there and thought about this for a while. And I was like, as a disabled person, there's this narrative 
that we're either your victim or we're your villain because we're telling you something's inaccessible, which is absolute ableism. It's absolute gaslighting. It's absolutely ableist to its core. There's nothing else for us disgusting. So I snapped back at this person. And the funniest part is this person offered to still meet me. But I guess I'd love to still meet you, but I'm going to absolutely just rip you apart here and tell you why you're a, vil- a villain here for doing this. And I went back to him. I was like, you know what? I know my worth. And my worth is not supporting you right now. It's a very one-way street when you want to pinpoint a disabled person asking for accessibility as the victim or the villain. And this person never came back to me. But honestly, it would surprise you the number of people out there don't care about accessibility. The number of people who are aware of it, but still every day opt to go, nah, I'm not doing that. Don't care, too long. I, I genuinely think it's because of a lack of awareness around how many people would benefit from that additional time spent on adding in these elements i i I think a lot of the 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 creators on linkedin especially in the last couple of years that have come onto linkedin because they see it as this organic heaven for growth and reach um and they come on and they spend six seven eight hours a day hacking the system for a year and they get to some silly number of followers and then they actually realize they can't that's not sustainable because you can't actually do a job and spend eight hours a day on linkedin um yeah so you kind of but they they genuinely think that the percentage of people that would benefit from those additional features that take up a bit more of their time is so small that what's the point um when actually and and it's it's a, it's a real genuine naivety because i think that people think oh well unless you're deaf you'll just watch the video Right, okay, 70%, upwards of 70% of people don't watch video with sound for, for a whole host of reasons. My son has got perfect hearing. He has the subtitles on Disney, Netflix, and Prime. Never never watches anything without subtitles because he prefers to read. Um, I'll put, so see if I'm watching something and it's not like, if it's not like really clear English, because like, I'll be honest, I get distracted really easy. And subtitles I can't see unless on my phone, if I'm watching a video on my phone, I'll have those subtitles on, even though I'll have to be doing have like this my phone here. Like I said, I got my phone to see. Like it's right touching my head almost. But they're still there. They help me focus on words, particularly if it's a language that I'm not used to. And it really does help tune in. It's just the studies have shown that more people listen to them. I think the problem is, you know, in school, we don't get taught. Like when I was in school, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I didn't get taught that about inclusion or about accessibility or how to be a bit more considerate for the people. I was taught to be segregated. Other kids were taught that I was special, that I was different, and that, do you know what, I wasn't exactly equal to them. So I got bullied because of that, I got excluded because of that, not just in primary school, even in secondary school. Even when I went to special school, I got bullied, but that was because I was gay in school, and obviously, that, you know, that's another problem in itself. But, you know, having this belief growing up that we were constantly being segregated, that you were being taken aside, getting a classroom assistant to do your work for you, it was, we were set this different bar, and that's what the problem is, is that that problem still persists. As much as we say tonight and we are seeing small changes, it's still happening. We're still segregating and we're not teaching young people how to be inclusive, how to be accessible. And not just to disabilities, to everybody. To everybody. You know, if we look at this week at the murder of Brianne, that little trans girl in Scotland, that's absolutely, isn't it? I think it was Scotland. Um, a terrible location, geography, now my mind's going. But that is absolutely horrendous. A 15 and 16 year old up, and up for that murder. Where have we went wrong that we are feeling society, our kids in society so wrong that this is now the normal? You open your papers all the time. You read about kids getting bullied because you're diverse, because they're gay, because they're trans, because X, Y, Z. 
and it all stems from education. We are failing kids in education. We're failing the kids with the lived experience and we're failing the other kids because we're not teaching them how to be better, better global citizens. Like that's what it is, it's been a global citizen, it's being respectful to each other and it's taking the time to want to help people. That's what we've went wrong. So we've all grew up with this belief that oh, it doesn't affect me. So, you know, I just out of mind. And I think that's the problem with big influences a lot of time when they don't create the successful content is, well, it doesn't impact me. I don't know about it. So meh. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, the number of disabled people is increasing. Well, I think it's like 1.8 billion at the moment is the last kind of count done by Purple. 1.8 billion people, 17% of the planet. One in, is it one in four, one in five people in the UK have lived experience by the disability or neurodivergence. Um, and you look at these figures and you compare that to years ago, and those figures are less. And it's because more people are stepping forward and saying, Do you know what? I want to be counted. And it's also because 80% of us acquire a disability later in life. So it's like, Yes, this may not impact your influences now, but it might impact your sister, your brother, or even yourself or your family member, friend, colleague down the line. So why aren't we thinking, let's just make everything accessible because it's going to benefit mm. us or a friend, mm. a family member one day? Yeah. I've done you a know, I, there. Uh, but you, you've you've summed it up beautifully, really. And I think I think it is a lesson to any creator that is out there thinking that, They've got enough business and they've got enough of a pipeline and they've got enough of this and that and they don't need to then cater for an additional market. But the reality is no one likes losing business. And by not being accessible with your content, by not doing simple things like adding captions on your videos, you are excluding such a large chunk of people that might buy from you, that might engage with you. The amount of people that I follow and have done for a long time and that I like and admire and I'll come across a video that hasn't got captions on it and I won't engage with it. Out of pure principle, I could turn it on. I'm not on a train. I could easily sit there and watch it with the sound. I'm not disturbing anyone, but I choose not to just out of pure principle because I think you've been lazy there. Like that's lazy. And I think that you and, and many others, myself, we almost have a I feel like I've got a duty to continue to try and educate and in, and inspire and and change the the goalposts a little bit in terms of how people communicate. Um, you said about the kids and and incredibly, I'm very conscious on on your time, but and and we'll kind of finish on this topic because the children and the education and the way they're being um, mentored in schools is a big thing for us. Obviously, my son, both my sons are in school mainstream. Um, Jake has always had a, a one-to-one right from the start of uh, school because he was diagnosed at four um, and he had an educational healthcare plan. My wife now works as a support assistant for an autistic child in uh, year R. So he's four and a half. Um, and lots of different challenges that, that presents, um, different from the autistic child she worked with last year because... We're all different, right? There's no one size fits all. But your point around us not educating, edu- educating is so apparent. And I hear the stories when she comes home. And obviously, she has to be careful what she says. And, and the teachers in these schools are incredible human beings. They are working their absolute ass off to try and uh, fit into a system that unfortunately doesn't support what you're talking about especially in mainstream it is very much and you talk about isolation and my wife says it all the time oh you know we're kind of forced to take 
ex-pupil out of the class if they're being disruptive because it's then disrupting everyone else. A, that's a challenge and that's also not helping the child integrate. It doesn't educate the other children on what different children struggle with. And also for every one child that's got an education healthcare plan because their parents have had the time to go through the process and actually get one, and it is really consuming, uh, time consuming, there's probably five or six more children that don't have that label, shall we say, that are going under the radar, that are desperate for support, that don't get it. Um, and that is, that's a major, major issue in mainstream schools. Um, when we when we explored secondary schools with Jake, where he starts in September and he is going to mainstream. <clears throat> we explored a couple of options of, of specialist schools. And as you said, you don't really like that term, but that's the term they use. And there was, they, they typically every year get around 100 applicants and they can only fill 20 spaces. Since school, I went to, like school, I went to had six people in my class. I think in total, was probably 50 people in my school at any given time when I was in secondary school. I, I, I really did like, I, I like my classmates, I'm not gonna lie. Like I, it was amazing to have teachers who were trained on how to speak to kids who were visually impaired. Because my kid, my school I went to was with teachers who were especially trained for deaf children and for children who were visually impaired or blind. And it was amazing, it was an amazing experience. But even that segregation where you are almost, and I know this is probably going to sound terrible, but it's like special education, it has this, it has this weight behind the word that when you're a young person, when you hear special, you do, you think of special needs, you don't want to be that person. And I know that it's not the same for everyone, this is my experience, but a lot of the people I went to school with felt the exact same, it's like, I don't want to be labelled special needs. So when I was coming home to my friends for evenings, I was lying about where I went to school. I told them I went to boarding school, but I didn't board. Like, I don't know who believed that lie, but like, I would go to boarding school, but I don't board. I just travel an hour and a half each way there. But it's this stigma that's attached to it. And when I went into mainstream schools to do my levels, I must have been 17 at the time, 18. I got really badly bullied straight away because the kid, other kids knew when I told them I went to boarding school. And it was, they knew that age, they knew at that age. And it was almost at this segregation where teachers would segregate me for lessons. They would segregate me to do one-on-ones. They wouldn't speak to me in a group set and they wouldn't talk to me about the board. Like, bear in mind, I did art. There wasn't even that much board work, but it was just this whole different way of being treated. Whereas before, when I was in special education, that teacher spoke to the whole class. Even though it was a class of six, that teacher still spoke to everybody. When that teacher was coming around the room, they still spent the time. And maybe it's that you know, the teachers don't have the time. We know when mainstream education, they don't always have the time, but... There's surely something that we are doing there that is not okay. Maybe we need two teachers in this classroom or something. I don't know, but there needs to be a shift in it because we aren't empowering young disabled people in mainstream education. When we go to specialist education, yes, we're getting the empowerment, but then we're having to come back into society that is still disabling us. So it's like you fall off a cliff, and that's exactly what I described to people. I left education and fell off a cliff because there was no support society wasn't set up the way the special school was and mainstream education just continued to reinforce the idea that I was less because of my disability. Jamie, this has been um, uh, an incredible conversation, mate, to be honest. I've really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, it's actually been the most... Um, I've actually, I've barely asked you any questions. It's been a very much a, just a two-way conversation about our own lived experiences. Um, and I think people will really resonate with that. So 
thank you very much for, for coming on, giving up your time. I feel like there needs to be a part two at some point in the near future. Anytime we check to me, so happens you get two neurodivergent people together. We don't even need to ask questions, just bounce off each other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that, exactly that. And that's that was why the podcast was started. And I think now that I've got the answers I was looking for in myself, one of the reasons I did that was so that I could speak with more authority and not kind of feel like a fraud. Um that was kind of just living it through my son at least now i feel like i i can speak with that authority a bit more um so that was really important for me but mate it's been brilliant thank you very very much and um enjoy the rest of your day and have a fantastic weekend cheers thank you very much happy friday happy friday <laughs>